You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I am your host, Virgil Varix, and welcome to the show today. Today is February 2nd, 2019. Happy New Year to everybody. All right. So let's get into the show. Let's get started. Um, so today I'd like to talk a little bit about um, economics. I've been doing shows here and there about economics back and forth, and I kind of want to you know, pepper the show with economics, economic sub- subjects and topics throughout you know, a month here and there, bring some economics uh, into the fray. So today I kind of want to talk about uh, major sources of economic progress as well as kind of getting into poverty and the economics of poverty itself. So I'm going to start off with, you know, uh, major sources of economic progress throughout the countries and throughout the world in large. So today I'm going to cover, you know, some concepts about, you know, economic growth, you know, its importance and you know, record keeping of it, legal systems and private ownership, private property incentives, competitive processes. So um, why is economic growth important? You know, Robert Lucas, the uh, 1995 Nobel laureate, stated that once you start thinking about economic growth, it's hard to think about anything else. Um, you know, e- economists place so much of an emphasis on economic growth and, you know, the question is really why do they do that? And, you know, the main reason for that is, you know, growth of real output is necessary for growth of real income. So without growth, higher income levels and living standards cannot be achieved in a country. So throughout most of human history, economic growth has been extremely rare. But this started to change around, you know, the year uh, 1800, or the 1800s to put it that way. So per capita income changed very little from century prior to the 1800s, but growth has, you know, exploded during the last 200 years. So Let's say we, we measure it $1990, you know, the world uh, per capita income was about $667 uh, dollars in 1820 uh, and only about 50% higher than the uh, year 1000. So by 2003, however, income has risen to 6516 10 times the 1820 level. So during the past 200 years, the income growth of the high-income individual countries, you know, which is a lot of the Western countries and some of the Asian countries, have even you know nearly gone up 20-fold, if not you know higher than that. So another important thing that we can look, you know, you look at just look at the, you know, per capita income, like I said, in the 1820s for per capita income. Uh, our GDP per capita was around six hundred sixty-seven dollars, and in two thousand three, which is again a long time ago, uh, twenty-three thousand seven hundred and ten dollars. So it's it's very different. Uh, 
And that's for the Western countries. And for the world at the time, it's, again, 6,516. So things have risen. Things have gone up over time. But it's kind of important to also take into effect that, you know, with economic progress, with economic growth, other things start to change, such as life expectancy. So the pattern of life expectancy is similar to that of, you know, per capita income. You know, life expectancy at birth for the world rose from, you know, 26 to 20 or from 24 to 26 between 1,000 and 1820, but it soared to 64 years by 2003. And, you know, the same exact pattern happened in the uh, Western countries as well. In 1820, in a Western country, you know, the average age was 36, about 10 years more than the world life expectancy. And by 2003, the uh, life expectancy was 76. So you can see with economic progress comes an overall better, you know, quality of life. Um, so, you know, when you have a legal system, you know, the foundation for economic progress is, you know, a legal system that protects, you know, privately owned property and enforces contracts in an even-handed manner. Um, so private property rights, uh, this is some, you know, things that America has been founded on and other Western nations and nations in, uh, like in Singapore and even Hong Kong. So private ownership or, uh, of property involves three things. Exclusive use, owners of private property can decide how to use their property, how it will be used. Um, uh, protection against invaders. Others are prohibited from using the property by the owner's permission, explicit consent. Um, and transferability. Owners have the right to buy, sell, or derive income from their land, natural resources, capital, and entrepreneurial talent. So private ownership makes people accountable for their actions. Um, private ownership also has a lot to do with incentives. So the most important aspect of private, you know, ownership is the incentive it creates. You know, there's four reasons why I think private ownership propels economic growth and progress. So, like I said, private ownership provides people with a strong incentive to maintain and care for their property. It encourages people to use and develop their property in ways other, others value highly. It makes owners legally responsible for damages imposed on others as a result of how their property is used. Promotes, you know, the conversation, uh, a conservation of resources for the future. Um, private ownership, you know, for many, you know, for many years, for, for centuries, actually, p- pessimists have argued and stated that the world is about to run out of a lot of resources, trees, minerals, energy resources, and as Julian Simon mentioned, the when it when it comes when it comes down to it. The only true natural uh, resource is human ingenuity. It's the human mind. It's the our ability to create and innovate and make things different. You're seeing it now. I mean, quote unquote, we've been at peak oil since the 70s. Whatever. Even though we're America's producing more oil than it ever has in its life, I'm not saying I necessarily think fossil fuels are the future or, or, or necessarily a moral good. But what I do think is. You know, the, the ideas of scarcity has changed a lot. You know, I mean, I don't think we're going to ever go into a post-scarcity society, but we are continuing to find alternative ways of making things better. And there's innovation coming in, like, you know, for instance, if gasoline is harmful and the use of gasoline is bad, you're having people and innovators coming out and creating products and creating, you know, uh, vehicles and other types of stuff that, you know, using electricity and um, batteries that could be very beneficial and very different and could take things to a whole different level. And that's all through the use and entrepreneurial talent that you have over your private ownership of your, you know, property or everything, um, capital. So, you know, 
the increase in price provides consumers, you know, producers and invaders and engineers with incentives to conserve on the direct use of the resource. So, like I said, you know, many people for centuries have argued that, the pessimists have argued that the world is going to run out of resources. And, you know, when the scarcity of privately owned resources increase, the invisible hand of the market takes over and prices rise. And this is how things are kind of balanced in a, you know, a an economy. Uh, the increase in price. So when, you know, like I said, when the invisible hand of the market takes over and prices rise for a scarce privately owned resource, um, the, inc- the increase in price provides consumers, producers, and innovators and engineers with incentives to conserve on the direct use of the resource, um, search more diligently for the substitutes, and develop new methods of discovering and recovering large amounts of the resource. Now, today, these forces have pushed, you know, quote unquote, the doomsday, you know, scarcity problem ever farther into the future. And there's ever reason to believe that it'll continue to be pushed further and things will change. And, you know, I don't think, I mean, obviously things will run out, but now with space exploration, scarcity is not really going to be a big thing coming up, you know, anytime soon. You have asteroids with ice on them. You can make a lot, have a lot of clean, fresh water. Asteroids with gold, diamonds, um, iron. You could literally, there's more, and I believe in the asteroid belt, there's uh, more resources than we could use in, I think, over three, 4,000 years. So you're talking about the ability to uh, mine asteroids and mine, you know, other things in space to gain resources. So this this shows you how things are developing and changing, and how the idea, the doom, the doomsdays, uh, you know, sayers are about you know scarcity and all this stuff. Yeah, scarcity is real, and it's 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 very complicated the way people look at it because it's not just scarcity of resources. Scarcity will always be around because people's needs and wants will always increase over time. That's just how things are. So, you know, a legal system that protects property rights and enforces contracts in an even-handed manner provides the foundation for gains from trade, capital formation, and resource development, which compromise, you know, the foundations of economic growth and progress. You know, other forms of ownership have been tried in the past. However, none provide as much freedom and incentive to serve others and use resources efficiently as private ownership within the framework of uh, the rule of law. So another really important concept is, you know, competitive markets. You know, competition promotes the efficient use of resources and provides the incentive for innovation and improvements. So, you know, the competitive process, you know, competition is present when the market is open and alternative firms are free to enter and compete. You know, competition encourages firms to supply goods and service consumers with, you know, you know, supply goods and services to consumers that they value highly uh, relative to a cost and, you know, produce efficiently and keep their costs low. And that's, you know, what competition encourages them to do. So, you know, competition weeds out firms that fail to provide consumers with quality goods at a competitive price. So if somebody is really messing up, not producing a good product, you know, the reviews are bad, they're not going to be around long. And that's that's the beauty of the market. You know, so the beauty of the market is the consumer's rule at the end of the day. We are the ones who 
decide whether businesses, you know, stay open or close. You know, the consumers vote on which businesses stay and which must go are done by using their dollars. You know, it's your dollar vote. You know, consumers purchase translate into business revenue. You know, producers will supply those goods and services to consumers, you know, if they value enough to pay a price sufficient to cover the cost of resources required for their production. But producers who fail to do this will make losses and be driven out of business. Profits and losses decide which firms will survive and which goods should be produced and will be produced. You know, competition and innovation. That's another really important point to make about competition. You know, in a market economy, entrepreneurs are free to innovate. They need only the support of investors, often which include themselves, willing to put up the you know, necessary funds and the necessary operating costs uh, and startup costs to get the thing going. So if consumers value the innovation you know, uh, enough to cover its costs, a new business will profit and prosper. Um, but if consumers find that the new products are worth less than their cost, the businesses will suffer losses and eventually fail. So consumers are, you know, the ultimate judge and jury of the business innovation and performance at the end of the day. Um, competition in uh, business structure and the size of firms, you know, this is another thing to really, you know, point at. You know, competition discovers, you know, uh, the business structure and size of the firm that can best keep the per unit cost of a product service product or service low. So a business structure, unlike other economic systems, you know, a market economy does not mandate the type of firms that are permitted to compete. You know, in, in some sectors, in manufacturing of airplanes and automobiles, uh, for example, you know, firms will need to be quite large to take full advantage of the economies of scale. In other sectors, however, small firms will be more cost effective. When consumers place a high value on a personalized service, small firms generally dominate. So we talk about competition. Another thing to really you know think about is um, competition is not pro business. You know, businesses often lobby government officials, requesting favors that will limit competition, that will reduce the, their need to go out there and compete. And government regulations. Remember this: government regulations that limit entry into markets, create barriers to entry, and favor. Some businesses over others, under, you know, undermine the competitive process and the competitive force of a market economy, thus, you know, becoming more cronyism, more cronyistic in a way. So another thing to realize about competition is um, self-interest and how that works into the thing. You know, when de- directed by competition, self-interest is a powerful force for economic progress. And, you know, in The Wealth of Nations, uh, Adam Smith, a uh, very famous quote, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher – uh, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but the regard for their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love and never talk to them of our own necessities, but their advantages. So remember that. So another thing to take into effect about you know economic progress is regulations, you know, capital and the monetary stability. So, you know, limits on government regulation. So regulatory pro- policies that reduce exchange and restrict competition impede economic progress and innovation, I would add. Um, exchange is productive, right? It provides people expand output and achieve higher income levels. Competition is a source of market discipline. Regulations require, you know, entrance in the market to obtain permission from the government are generally counterproductive. 
A country cannot realize its full potential unless restrictions that limit trade and reduce competitiveness are kept to a minimum. It needs to be kept to a minimum. And if you're trying to have a prosperous nation, that is. So governments limit the exchange and reduce the competitive markets when they limit entry to the, into business and occupations, licensing requirements, uh, completing bureaucratic form, you know, you know, you have to complete bureaucratic forms and other political roadblocks, reduce the competitiveness of markets, substitute political authority for the rule of law and freedom of contracts, imprecise, ambiguous and discriminatory laws invite people to spend resources on lobbying and searching for political favoritism rather than, you know, actual production and being competitive. You know, uh, the government also limits exchange when they, you know, impose price controls. You know, price floors and price ceilings interfere with trade between buyers and sellers, distort prices, lead to inefficient, you know, levels of production and employment, and ultimately will rise the cost of things rather than lower the cost of things. Just look at rent in a lot of the big cities around the United States. And, you know, for that matter, anywhere rent controls put into effect or any type of a price floor or price feeling. So a big thing people like to people like to talk about is, you know, minimum wage and increasing the minimum wage to $15. And but, you know, something important to mention is economists don't have this view that this is a good idea. Now, some economists out there might. But, you know, from all records, about 80 percent of economists have a consensus that minimum wage reduces the ability for people to get jobs and actually the lowest skilled workers out there, it reduces them from ever getting a job. And I'll explain that right now. So the basic idea of uh, economics indicates that a higher you know, minimum wage would reduce the employment of low skilled workers. A basic idea of it. So research indicates, and this has been covered everywhere. You look at San Francisco, look at Seattle, and now look at New York with their $15 minimum wage. Look at, look at all the data that has been taken. And I'll put these in the show notes. Look at all the data and tell me that things have not gotten worse. And, and this is very complicated. I'm not, ju- I'm not trying to justify paying people nothing. That's not what it, I'm saying. What I'm saying is at times a good intentioned idea by the state, by the government actually has a counterproductive effect. So research indicates that there are a 10% increase in the minimum wage will reduce employment by 1% to 2% because wage increases are substantially larger than reductions in employment. A higher minimum wage will nearly always increase the total earnings of low-skilled workers. So proponents of minimum wage believe that the higher total earnings are worth the reductions in employment. So – and this is really important. And that's that's a cost and benefit analysis that people have to make who support minimum wage. So are you happy that people who already have a job, right, are getting more right now? And, you know, the people that don't have a job are not, you know, the best at their job – you know, will either lose employment or not be able to get employed because they're just priced out of the labor market. So minimum wage, you know, when it comes to poverty, you know, it appears that higher minimum wages would reduce poverty. Um, But again, this is very questionable. So, uh, you know, and and some data shows about 80% of minimum wage workers are members of households with incomes above the poverty level. Only one out of every seven is a primary earner for a family, which is more, has one or more children. Secondary effects, you know, the higher minimum wage will result in less hours worked, fewer training opportunities, less convenient work schedule, and fewer, you know, benefits or, you know, any type of benefits you can get. Um, More than half of poor families in the United States do not have anyone in the labor force and therefore higher minimum wage will not help them. 
It's not about, you know, if they're not working, how can higher minimum wage does not mean they're going to guarantee them a job. That's another thing people are misunderstanding about a minimum wage. It's like, okay, good. For the people who have a job, fine. You're giving them more money. Whatever. Sure. But how about the people that don't have a job? How about the people that are struggling to find jobs? How can, how can we encourage them? And the thing is, like, if they don't have a lot of experience and let's say you have somebody who does and they go and apply for a job and, you know, you know $15 minimum wage, the person's going to, you know, end up picking the person with a little bit more experience rather than even looking at that guy or gal who doesn't have an experience or, le- or less experience. So it's very important to understand that minimum, you know, minimum wage, you know, is it makes it illegal for someone to say, look, I want to work for this amount of money. And the person's saying, OK. So another thing that I mentioned this before in a lot of talks uh, on the show, occupational licensing in the United States. <laughs> so most occupational licensing occurs at the state level. In order to obtain a license, um, one has to pay fees ranging from, you know, mo- you know, modest to really, really crazy uh, prices. And, you know, it takes training courses for, you know, six to 12 months, pass examinations. So licensing requirements increase substantially in recent decades. So in the 1970s, fewer than 15% of American workers and jobs that required a license. They didn't need a license. Fewer than 15%. Today, the figure is nearly 30%, and it's actually growing. I think it's actually over 30%. Um, and some of this data isn't as recent as I would like it to be. But from what I remember from the most recent occupational licensing, look, I think it's 32 to 33% of jobs in the United States require an occupational license. So today, more than... You know, 1,100 occupations are licensed in at least one state, up from 800 in uh, the 1980s. So occupational licensing requirements prohibit individuals from pursuing desired careers. So licensing reduces supply and drives up the prices of goods and services provided by that licensed practitioner. Um, Those currently in the occupation gain at the expense of consumers and unlicensed potential producers, uh, the employment opportunities of unlicensed producers are diminished and potential gains from trade law. So an example of this is in New York, you need a occupational license to walk a dog. I'm not kidding. If you want to walk dogs, you need to spend thousands of dollars, a lot of time and take a test and examination, get your license to walk a dog. Now, why is that a problem? Because there's a ton of poor people that necessarily don't have, you know, transferable skills that can go in into a, necessarily into a workplace that could walk a dog. So to me, it seems that occupational licensing is pricing out people from the ability to get a job, doing hair and braiding, you know, doing hair at all. And I think in New York as well needs to be licensed. And there's been a lot of problems with people getting in trouble for that for doing hair at their homes and their apartments and, you know, people getting in trouble for not having an occupational license. To me, it's really dumb. Um, so, you know, the employment opportunities of unlicensed producers are diminishing potential gains from trade is lost. This happens. This is real. You know, regulations often appear to be an easy way to solve problems in a market economy. But, you know, very often, regulatory policies reduce gains from trade and production and the competitiveness of markets, ultimately. Regulation, you know, regulatory policies that impose roadblocks against trade and entry into markets and puts barriers to entry 
will almost always be counterproductive towards economic progress and economic growth and the betterment of the whole you know, people. So something that I wanted to mention as well, you know, we talk, we, I've been talking a little bit about poverty and something, you know, is very important, you know, wanting to help the poor is not enough, right? The incentive structure accompanying many anti-poverty programs often encourage um, a lot of things that could be detrimental to a family, could be detrimental to uh, a community, and reduce the abilities of individuals to help themselves, resulting in a dependency. Um, like um, in many cases, uh, there was a famous case in uh, Free to Choose, Milton Friedman's program, where he interviewed a family, and uh, you know, I think guy lost guy lost a job, and his family was trying to, you know, make end meet, ends meet, and they had they were on welfare, and you know, he he got another job immediately, and as soon as he got the job, they cut the benefits off, and the thing is, it like. At that point, it was very – he had to struggle because, you know, the 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 point from where, you know, you're starting to work and, you know, gaining money to the point where you're, you know, being helped, you know, that immediate cutoff wasn't, you know, necessarily good and it, it caused a lot of problems. And, you know, it almost put him in a position where, you know, the more he ended up working, the less the benefits came in and, you know, he wasn't necessarily able to – um Fine. He was stuck in a position where he he had to decide whether or not he should uh, collect unemployment again. So it's a very complicated thing. You know, effective charity requires you know charity. I believe in charity. I'm a big believer in charity, and I donate to charity, and I think everybody should. Um, so effective charity requires donors to consider their impact on the actions of the recipients. Um, you know, the thing is like you. Th- another thing about charity is. You know, you want to help somebody be able to lift themselves up as well as helping them in the moment, right? You, you don't want somebody to um, fall into, you know, habits and processes that might not be the best thing for them in the moment. Um, it's you know, the problems of, of poverty is very complex and it's multidimensional. You know, so the effective action requires obviously a personal involvement. Um, growth and prosperity enhances charitable event activities. So income must be generated before it can be shared with others. And that's another importance of economic growth is the area. So for, take, for instance, America, it's the most giving country in the world. We give over $400 billion a year, if I'm not mistaken, to different charities privately. That's not, you know, taxed and, you know, given through the government. That's just us as individuals, as people giving money to others. So that tells me a lot. It tells me that, you know, people in a successful country like America, you know, a country that has adopted a lot of market policies that have been good, some are not so good, um, you know, people that have higher income levels tend to care enough about people to where they would donate $400 billion over, the, over the course of a year. It's crazy to me. And it's beautiful, honestly. So historically, the less developed world has been you know, hampered by insecure private property rights and laws. Uh, the absence, actually, of the rule of law in many cases and high trade barriers take a place like where I'm from, you know, Iraq. Uh, that's a perfect example. You know, private property rights are not not secured at all. The absence of the rule of law is pretty high. 
And there's a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to trade. Um, you know, charity provides only short-term help. You know, private property rights in the country. Now we're talking internationally, right? And the rule of law are essential for long-term reductions in poverty. The poor perhaps have been more than others need private property rights in the rule of law. Without this, they're unable to build businesses, to start, you know, their employment opportunities are, li- are greatly limited and they become, you know, dependent on charity. So an important thing is, you know, when we talk about economic progress, we need a system that will encourage, you know, the people in poverty, the people hurting most, the people suffering most, the ability to find a successful, you know, job, a successful outlet where they can add value to themselves and add value to the world and then, you know, slowly build their way out. I mean, how did this country become the way it is? Um, 250 years ago, everybody was subsistent farmers. And then over time, you know, the market economy became a thing and industrialization happened and people started, you know, creating different opportunities and different jobs. And people started, you know, gaining skills that would get them to those jobs. And this is how a country becomes rich. This is how, you know, areas of the world become rich. I mean, just look at in the last, you know, like I said, you know, I keep saying this. The United Nations said in the last 30 years over a billion people have been lifted out of poverty. And that's been, you know, primarily in um, in Asia. But it's fantastic to me. And it is because there's been more liberalization of their governments and not necessarily the governments, but more so liberalization of their economy, right? So, you know, without property rights and the rule of law, the poor are trapped in a sense. The opportunities are limited. They lack the base, the institutional foundation to grow and prosper. Um, Muhammad Yunus has a term, he calls them bonsai people in a way. Um, Building institutions and strengthening poverty rights or property rights is a difficult and evolutionary process within a nation, but it's essential for pro, uh, you know, for progress against poverty. Um, so during the four, past four decades, many less developed countries have implemented, like I said, institutional reforms that relax trade barriers and improve their legal systems and resulted in progress against poverty. Like I said, you know, many different stats, but like since the 1980s, extreme poverty in the world in the developing world, uh, that is, has declined by 80%. According to Arthur, you know, Arthur Brooks, the five key factors underlining this achievement were globalization, ooh, scary word uh, for the uh, Trump crowd, uh, free trade, another scary word for the Trump crowd, uh, property rights, the rule of law, and entrepreneurship. So again, Arthur Brooks, uh, according to Arthur Brooks, the five key factors underlying this achievement, that 80% of the developing world has declined, the extreme poverty has declined by 80%, is globalization, free trade, property rights, rule of law, and entrepreneurship. So institutions and progress against poverty, you know, free market economy makes it possible for individuals to match their skills with their passions, pursue opportunities, benefit from hard work, merit, and dependability, and keep what they earn. Um, so counterproductive policies, let's talk about this, that governments try to do. And, you know, we sometimes think are, you know, good in a way. So disempower, so sometimes, you know, sometimes disempowering farmers in poor countries. So agricultural policies coupled with food aid from the United States and Europe, from European countries makes it difficult for farmers in developing countries to sell their produce at home and abroad. So why is this? 
let's break it down real quick. Let's unpack it. So you're a farmer in somewhere in Africa, okay? And let's say 96% of your country are farmers or some type of, you know, agriculture. Now, let's say America and the European countries, let's say they drop off food, uh, particularly agricultural goods in the form of food aid to this country for free. So let's say I'm a farmer and I want to sell my apples for $2 or $1, right? But then let's say America and Europe drops, you know, a thousand apples all free. It's nice. It's good. But what happens? What happens is the ability for me, a impoverished farmer, to make any money disappears because they've just completely – it's called you know, in economics, it's called dumping. They just dropped a product on the market that has you know, obviously no price and prices me out. So what do I have to do? I have to stop doing what I'm doing and find something else to do, which is very hard to do in a, in a country with 96% or 90% you know, agriculture. So what happens? They become impoverished. They go to crime or do something else to make ends meet. But what happens is, is you encourage a country to stay in poverty. That's why I think in a lot of cases, you know, some of the best things are done, some of the worst things in the world are done with the best intentions. And I think in a lot of times, you know, foreign aid is very well intentioned and a lot of times it's needed in certain cases. But essentially, you're outpricing farmers and other people that are trying to, you know, build a market in their own country and get themselves out of poverty. And this happens on a large scale over time. It's not just one person. So access to markets, competition, and free trade, trade restrictions, and other regulations have reduced entrepreneurial opportunities, like I said, in the developing world. You know, Bono, <laughs> the lead singer of U2, uh, you know, initially stressed you know, government approaches to alleviate poverty in the developing world. But over time, you know, his views change. You know, today Bono actually stresses that what really brings – uh, people out of poverty and commerce is entrepreneurial capitalism. He said this actually, I think, at Georgetown, if I'm not remembering, at uh, a commencement ceremony. But he did say that. He said, what gets people out of poverty is commerce and entrepreneurial capitalism. So, again, another, another pol- you know, policies that hurt and ha- policies that help. You know, ultimate source of wealth and growth is the human mind, like I said. I've been saying for a while. You know, failure to understand this point has led to destructive, you know, population control policies. So gender preferences, you know, due to a male preference in many countries, population control leads to millions of girls being aborted. Uh, gender imbalances. As a result of population control pop- policies, gender imbalances now exist. Today in some countries, there are 20% fewer young women than men. And gender side, in my opinion, you know what happens to the 100 million baby girls? Just disappeared. So this stuff, this stuff has huge, horrible effects. More so than we can even, you know, understand. So, you know, we talked about the world. You know, we, let's talk about America. So from 1947, 2002, the poverty rate of families in the United States fell from 32% in 1947 to approximately 10% in 1970. But, you know, shortly after the war on poverty programs, the poverty rate leveled off and has changed little over the last four decades. So, again, a government action, the war on poverty, just like the war on drugs, <laughs> has the opposite effect of what they're actually trying to do. 
So with the war on poverty programs, like I said, the poverty level leveled off and has changed very little over since. So why has there been so little progress in poverty since the 1970s? Well, some people claim that, you know, wages have stagnated and that there is some evidence to show that. That is true. Uh, money, the value of money has gone down. Inflation, of course, has hurt people's savings. So saving is actually disen- disen- you know, disencouraged. Now, that, you know, spending you know, is encouraged because, you know, your savings will go down in value. So the current anti-poverty system encourages single parent households uh, a lot and discourages marriages. Now, what do I mean by this? So, and this is a very complicated and you know topic and things to unpack. So, what do I mean? So, at times, so if you're single and have children, you can get a higher um, check from the government, right? And in many cases, which I've known a few people that have done this, have you know have somebody living there, and then when somebody comes in, he kind of you know leaves for a little bit, and they check the the place out, and then they come back. Yeah, I understand that. It's working working around the game, and it's fine. Um, but, you know, the facts are, and this is every single data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that if you're a two-parent household, two-family household, that they'll definitely make more money than a one-parent household. I think it just makes sense, two people working. And the benefits are often higher for a single-parent household, though. So marriage can often result in loss of benefits in many cases. So while an increase in per capita income has reduced poverty, the increase in, um, you know, uh, poverty has kind of increased for single families, single parent families over time. So an income increase, the benefits transfer programs has declined over time. So, so this is the Samaritan's dilemma. Transfer programs that decrease the adverse consequences of poverty reduce the incentives of individuals to take steps to avoid it. So again, this is the this is the trap that a lot of people get involved in and get you know stuck in. And like I mentioned, you know, does the minimum wage help reduce poverty? This is a great and really important thing to point at. You know, most minimum wage workers are actually not poor. So forty percent of minimum wage earners live in a household with an incomes of sixty thousand or more. That's above the poverty line in America. Uh, more than 80% of minimum wage workers do not have dependents as well. So according to data, and this is actual data from the government, only 5.3% of minimum wage earners live in poverty. So a higher minimum wage will reduce the employment of low-skilled workers. Remember, demand curve slope downwards. So if the price of labor is higher, the quantity employed will be smaller. It's just simple supply and demand. Um, thus, mandating higher wages is an, effect, is a, is an ineffective tool. With which, uh, with which to reduce poverty. Um, so I think a really important thing to mention is we talked about, you know, the things about that, that you know, bring in human progress and increase economic, you know, freedom. But you know, the big part of the show is, is human flourishing, right? So in countries with most economic freedom, people live much longer. Infant mortality rates are very low. Extreme poverty is virtually non-existent. And there's very little... Corruption. There is still corruption, but much less than in other countries. So people flourish when their lives have meaning and purpose, right? And having a higher standard of living and having the ability to do things help encourage that. 
So flourishing results when one life has meaning and purpose. Personal choice is essential. Only an individual knows what will give their life meaning and purpose. The opportunity for flourishing will be greater when individuals have more control over their lives, though. So economic freedom encourages this more control over their lives, encourages them to have more control over their lives versus less control, or the control being in the hands of some bureaucrat or some dictator, right? When economic freedom is present, individuals will have greater opportunity to control their own life and make choices that provide purpose and meaning. Linkage between economic freedom and flourishing in countries with more economic freedom said life expectancy is higher. If your mortality rate is lower, extreme poverty is non-existent, basically, and there's less corruption. So a really important thing to to kind of, you know, cap off and kind of you know, put it all together is, you know, we need sound institutions, you know, to protect the rights buyers and sellers and enforce the rules and regulations against fraud and misrepresentation in the market though. You can't have economic growth without that. You know, capital markets, you know, broadly defined include both personal and business loans, right? Banks, credit unions, investment firms are part of a capital market. They bring the buyers and sellers of capital together as, you know, savers, borrowers and investors. So we need sound institutions. You know, another thing to, to mention and to to point out is in a lot of cases, it's a lot of a lot of these policies that are meant to fight poverty but encourage things that might not be so good for the outlook of poverty or might not look so good for the outlook of individuals is a lot of these times it's unintentional consequences. You know, people like to say, oh, it's on purpose or whatever. These are unintentional consequences. You know, it's it's unintentional that a lot of these things are the way they are. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that like with anything, you know, you're, you're – if I create a policy, the policy for me is not necessarily going to be weighed on my intentions and my hopes and dreams for it. It should be weighed on – you know, its consequences and effect on someone's actual life. So it's important to understand that, you know, economic growth and, you know, economic progress and the major sources of this is, like I said, the human mind ultimately. That's the major source. And, you know, if we continue to develop it and to grow it and to allow people to be free around the world and allow people to have rights and allow people to, you know, choose things that will, you know, allow them to have more control in their lives, then the world would be able to prosper more. So again, I just uh, wanted to point out and say that, you know, I want to thank you and say that this is a really important topic and that, you know, we need to pay attention to the progress around the world, particularly on how poverty is reduced, but also particularly, on you know, what has made, you know, certain countries so prosperous over the last 200 years. And what can we do by taking these ideas, taking these policies and taking these, you know, institutions, rights and all these different things that I mentioned today, taking this and then transporting it to a different country and then putting it over there and have them grow and have them become successful. So I want to thank you again and have a wonderful day. See you later. 